Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenacast. I'm your host, Jeff, and with me, as always, is Mona. Unfortunately, this week, Alan is on assignment. We are post-evangelical ministers and theological thinkers grappling with our place in the progressive Christian world. Thank you for joining us for another conversation on faith and culture. This week, because we're down a man in the podcast studio today, we are bringing in a couple guests that uh, Mona has graciously brought to the table. And more on why that is a funny pun in a second, I guess. <laughs> I was going to say, good one for the segue. So one of my really good friends, Christy, who I know from school, from seminary, and we also do social dancing together. Um, Christy attends a church called Simple Church, and it is a dinner farm-to-table church, which we'll hear more about it in a moment. So I'd like to say, hi, Christy. How are you? Welcome. Hey, Mona. I'm doing really well. How are you? I'm good. It's so good to have you on. And you have brought with you a guest, uh, Zach. Hi, Zach. How's it going? Hi, Mona. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Zach is the pastor of Simple Church. So the two guests we have today are both the members of this church or part you know what? Let, let's just let you guys take it away and <laughs> tell us, tell us your relationship to the community. All right, Christy, go first. So I discovered Simple Church about a year ago, actually a little bit more than a year ago. I was looking for a different type of community that was a little bit less stuffy, if I can be completely honest. I was looking for a way to build community. I'd been in my first year of seminary and realized, wow, that's definitely something that I'm missing. So I took a leap. I looked on the website and we had... um, there was a number at the bottom of the website that said, call and we'll save you a place at the table. So I called Zach and I was super nervous. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not usually a person who will just go and call and, uh, you know, do something crazy by myself. Um, that has since changed, which is exciting, but I took the leap. I joined this new community and I have fallen head over heels with its model with the people, with the things that we do that that really engage the community around us. And it's been a wonderful friendship with Zach as well. We now work together. I'm one of the interns at Simple Church, and I'm sort of wrapping that into my seminary experience as well. So Yeah, it's funny. I remember the I remember that first phone call because that was a time when we were still like hurting for for members. Like we had just gotten started. And so I was like, Every day I was like praying. I was like, please let someone come to church tonight. Someone new. Let someone come find their way to church. Um, and so I get a call from Christy and uh, I pick up and she goes, hi, is this uh, Simple Church? And I'm like, yeah, it is. And she goes, um, I- I'm calling to RCP. Is it too late to RCP? And I was like, no, come to church, please. <laughs> please get to church. Yeah, so that was uh, that was really funny. Um <laughs> So Zach, what's your background? Yeah. All right. So I am a recovering evangelical from Texas and happened to be kind of a lonely liberal in Texas, um, decided to go to the most liberal divinity school that I could possibly go to. So I moved up to New England to go to Harvard Divinity School and uh, went there for three magical years. Um, I would have stayed forever, uh, but they made me graduate. Um, so I, <laughs> like everyone was like struggling to decide what to do after seminary and, um, was serving a small little quarter time Methodist church 
in Brighton, Massachusetts, and we had six members, and each of them sat in their own pew, and oh boy, felt like a failure. And the uh, you know church, like I tried my darndest to grow it, and I couldn't do it. And it was in Brighton, which if you don't know, is like one of the most densely populated places in the world. Like a million people between 18 and 25 within three miles of my church that I was serving. Um, and I like could not get it to grow. And it was like driving me crazy. And people would walk in and they'd see the six people sitting in their own pews. And it smelled like death. And they, <laughs> like did not want to come back. I could see it in their face like in the very beginning. And so I was kind of like grappling with that. Wondering if I even wanted to like stay in the ministry. Trying to decide what I wanted to do with my life. And then I got a call from the Methodists in New England, and they asked if I wanted to start a church from scratch in Grafton. Long story short, the North Grafton Church went through a very similar thing to the the Brighton Church, where they just dwindled down to five or six people. But they had the foresight to say that instead of just like, last one out, shut the door, they were going to close the building into the church and sell the building and set aside the money from the building sale to start a new community. And so they retained their parsonage, which is on five acres of farmland and is directly next door to an organic farm. And they kept that empty for a year and a half until I came. And then they gave us a quarter million dollars to start the the church from, from the very beginning. Holy smokes. Wow. Wait. Okay, hold, can you back up for just a sec? They just called you in the blue room and were like, hey, will you start this farm church? Yes. Well, see, so they didn't even give me that much. Now, in retrospect, giving a 25-year-old like a quarter million dollars with no track record is probably pretty like fiscally irresponsible. So I'm really glad that they took a huge gamble on me because I had no proof that I could actually do anything with that investment. And I asked them like what they wanted me to do and like what I had to do. You know, I said like, do we have to meet on Sunday? They said, no. I was like, great. Said, do we have to have a church building? They said, no. I was like, great. I was like, do we have to have Sunday school? They're like, no. I was like, great. Um, And I was like, what do I have to do? And they're like, make disciples. And I was like, okay. Whoa. I I I, (laughs) I think I know what that means. And so the more I thought about it, I was like, if we make disciples, that means like following after the example of Jesus. A lot of times people talk about making disciples or talking about Sunday school or like Christian education in some way. But yeah. I think like if we actually model our lives after the way that Jesus did, Jesus didn't build a building and then invite people to come and hear him give speeches. You know, he went out doors and he preached where people were and he healed them and he fed them. I was like, that's, that's what I want to do. While at Harvard Divinity School, we had these Thursday night potlucks. We would like slam into each other's apartments. There'd be like 40 of us in one bedroom apartment, which is like fire code out the wazoo, I realize now. But, <laughs> um, and we would drink cheap wine and argue about theology until you know two in the morning. And I would never be able to sleep on Thursday nights because I was so jazzed by that and those conversations. And we would disagree just like so passionately. And it was great. Church didn't make me feel like that at all, ever. So when they gave me such a like wide breadth, I decided that we would 
focus on keeping it as simple as possible, never having a building that we were like weighed down by or had to find a way to afford. Like if we're being honest, most little churches in New England are not, you know, St. Peter's Cathedral. They're not. I think we put a lot of like undue attention and money into our buildings. You know, Jesus says, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And I think that right now our treasures in our buildings. And so I decided I didn't want to have a building. I want to keep it as simple as possible. And I wanted it to be on Thursday night. And I wanted it to be around a shared meal and conversations and dialogue. And I would call it Simple Church. And so it kind of like came to me like pretty immediately when they offered me the job. Um, and it's pretty much stayed exactly like I thought it was going to with very few exceptions. You are blowing my mind right now. <laughs> it's really great. It's deconstructed like everything that most people know of this experience and institution. It took it all apart. I think like if you go back and read Acts, like the way that early church is described, it's like they met in each other's homes over the prayers and the breaking of bread. And they had the goodwill of all people and God added to their number daily. And that, that sounds pretty good to me. Like you don't have to worry about how you're going to heat. You don't have to worry about how you're going to, you know, patch the roof or fix the steeple. But, you know, you can really focus on people. And, you know, like our roots are in Methodism. And the Methodist church in the beginning was, you know, operated on a shoestring. I think if John Wesley saw the church buildings that we have now and the way that we spend our money now, he would uh, flip over in his grave. <laughs> so with, uh, I guess this question is for, for both of you, with such a unique church model like that, like on the leadership end, what were some of the challenges making it happen and making it work? And, and what roadblocks did you run in towards the beginning um, in trying to find that, trying to fight that uh, tendency to kind of go with what we always know church to be? And then as, as an attender, Christy, like what was refreshing and what, what stood out about it and what did you miss from other church contexts or if anything, as you kind of journeyed with this new community? I'll yeah, um, I'll go for it, Christy. You go first. Okay. Um, I would say that I think it's it's a really beautiful thing to sit around a table. It's very centering to sit across from one another and actually to construct the sermon together. So I think um, what might be helpful, Zach, is if you sort of describe what our night looks like. Yeah. Um, and, and facility wise as well, we actually rent from a local church. So we don't own the building, but we do rent their space and, and that provides extra income for the church. And it, it helps us to, to operate simply. So Zach, if you want to, um, sort of explain our, our model on Thursday nights. Yeah. So I think I might go farther than just starting on Thursday night. So yeah, absolutely. What we do is we meet for this shared Eucharistic meal on Thursday nights and the rest of the worship life of the church is built around work. Um, and so the two main like elements of work that we do, like prayerful work are farming and baking. And so the church parsonage is the farmhouse on an organic farm that is like a fully functioning organic farm that functions completely outside of us. And they would, they would be fine without our help, but I'd like to think we contribute to their, their their workload. And so on a typical week, we'll meet together as a staff on Thursday morning and we'll meet at my house for breakfast um, at about nine o'clock. And then we'll pray the book of common prayer together 
pray for the church at like each individual member of the church will pray for over breakfast. And then we'll go and work on the farm from 1030 to noon. And then we'll come back together for prayer and lunch. And then we'll break for a little bit, rest, shower up after getting all dirty on the farm, and then come back to bake bread and make the food for church together. Bread making is really important. I'll get into that a little bit more, I'm sure, in a minute. Because the Eucharist is our kind of like central liturgical metaphor, the fact that we make the bread together, I think is really important. Um, And it has become like extremely important. And you can see pictures of the bread on our Instagram or Facebook if you check us out on online. But the the worship life like starts around 6.30. People will roll in starting at 6 and then we'll gather together. And once everybody's there, we'll gather in a circle around the table and we'll break bread and we'll pass it to one another. And we recognize that we're one in the body of Christ um, in the same way that bread starts out as many parts that come together as one loaf, um, you know, the flour, the water, the salt, uh, those come together and almost like magically become one loaf of bread. And in the same way, we're many around the table, we come to one in the body of Christ in communion with one another. That's what the whole service is about, um, is recognizing that, that, that Eucharist, that being thankful for the unity that we all share. And so we break the bread and we pass it to one another. We pray, we sing some songs, we serve each other food. We sit down, we read a little bit from the Bible, and then I give a little tiny, like four to six minute sermon. But that sermon is just like a starter. Like it's not like, it's not the sermon. Like it's like just like something for people to chew on. Then we have conversations for 30 minutes at the tables. And that's what I really consider the, the proclamation of the word is that like dialogue, uh, that give and take between people. So like, I really consider my sermon to be more like yeast in the bread. Like if it does its job a little bit, it goes a long way and it um, breathes life into the conversation, but nobody would ever point to yeast and say, Hey, that's bread, right? Like the real, the real bread um, is the conversations that we have for those like 20 or 30 minutes. And then we, we sing some songs. A lot of them are songs that we've written. We try not to have any paper because so many churches, one of the great unspoken sins of the church is that we print <laughs> Um, hundreds of pounds, thousands, hundreds of billions of pounds of paper a year as a church uh, in bulletins that we just throw away. Um, and everybody knows what's up. Everybody knows what's coming. Why are we going to print out, you know, who the choir director is? Go up and ask the choir director her name, right? So like, you know, we don't print anything, nothing to throw away at the end of the night. We use glassware and napkins, right? If we're doing our job, we will not have anything to throw away at the end of the night. If we have food scraps, we give it to our chickens, right? So we have written songs that are like call and response hymns. And then we sing a lot of like spirituals that people know and they don't need to um, read from a piece of paper. And then to end it all out, we do the, the last half of the communion ritual, which is juice. And it's the cup that represents the forgiveness of Christ. Um, and we usually end it with an altar call in a called throwback to my Texas evangelical upbringing. <laughs> um, I think like church without an altar call always feels a little weird to me. Um, and I know that like yeah. liberals up, up North are a little allergic. Yeah. What does that look like to you guys? I'm trying to picture that. So we don't have an altar to call people to, but I invite people every week to kneel at the altar of their heart 
and recommit themselves to following after the gospel and invite them into the community um, if they're new um, and say that if they're, you know, seeking the Christian life, that we're, we're there for them if they, and there for them to ask questions if they need help along the way. Christy, I don't know, maybe you want to throw in about what, um, what the altar call looks like? Yeah, I think um, one of the key elements of the, the altar call is also an opportunity to serve. Um, church doesn't happen with just Zach and it doesn't happen with just me or the interns or, or any other staff member. Like we have to work together as a community. And so one of the things we pass around a jar um, as an offering, if people are able, that's awesome. Um, oftentimes too, we'll also have extra eggs left over from the farm. So as a, as an offering to pick up some eggs, you can drop some money into the jar. Um, but I think too, you know, we, we offer opportunities for people to clean up and really be a part of that, that kitchen, that after meal Thanksgiving sort of feeling of, you know, I'm in the kitchen with my mom drying dishes after Thanksgiving, or, you know, I'm putting stuff away with my dad. Um, we break down tables, we sweep everything. And especially since it's rented space, we really have to take care of it. And I think that together as a community, we do that very well. I didn't think about how that would that cleanup or that caretaking aspect would would build a sense of family, but it makes total sense to me. I think like, um, I also realized that I never answered Jeff's question, so I'm going to circle back in a minute. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm from Texas, so I could talk to anybody all day about anything. Um, so uh, if I'm if I'm rambling too much, uh, I hope it you edit me. Oh, you're doing great. No, this is fantastic. <laughs> Keep going. I, I think like there's a general rule of community building that says you're not a member of a community until you have a job. And once you once you have a job, that's when you're you're part of the of the group. I think like the fancy highfalutin seminary word you use would be like the theory of community reciprocity. When you when you have responsibility and you're trusted to do to do a task, that's when you're part of a community. Um, and so I take seriously that and invite people to come early and help set up, invite people to stay really late and help clean up because it takes a long time. And the other thing too is like church like this like takes a long time. If someone comes to help with soup at like five, and then they stay until the last candles put away and the last section of floor is swept and the last dish is dried and put away, they're there for four hours. That's not a small thing to ask people to do. The tendency with like kind of our seeker sensitive like approach to Christianity is to like ask as little of people as possible. Uh, but I think like people are actually looking for something they can give their entire lives to. And so we shouldn't shy away from like asking people to give and give generously of their time and their energy and, you know, give them something they believe in and they'll constantly shock you with how much they'll give. That's very countercultural. It seems like for, for most. Yeah. Don't just stay for an hour and then go back and watch the TV. It's not, this isn't a consumer experience. Yeah. You're, you're going to freaking belong. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, I'll throw you shade if you like leave right after dinner uh without <laughs> clean <laughs> well a sense of being needed is so good and i think you know we we live in a culture that's plagued by loneliness and plagued by you know all kinds of depression and feelings of isolation there have been so many studies that have come out recently about this so um to go to a place where it's like if you're not there people are going to notice and miss you and you're needed like that that's a really crucial human feeling that we all need to experience 
And I think a lot of people with church feel as though in order to help out, they need to have like a specialized skill, you know, because we highlight music and teaching and preaching and all these things that a lot of people feel like they're unqualified for. So I think maybe it's yep. it's more of people w- definitely want to do that, but there's never a lot of opportunities within a traditional church structure to allow people to feel like they can use what they view as perhaps like a mundane gift, but that is actually super important for the community. Yeah, everybody can dry a dish with few yeah. exceptions. Everyone can so, feed the chickens. <laughs> every, yeah, I mean, everybody can yeah. like, throw a slot to the chickens. Um, I would also add that um, this is one of my favorite parts of Simple Church. Um, everybody is needed and every voice deserves to be heard and valued and loved. And I think, um, you know, when we talk through the little bit of yeast that Zach gives us at the beginning of the night, it becomes more and more um, evident that a lot of people in the church have very, very different views from one another. We are an incredibly theological diverse community for, um, for the size that we are. And I think one of the most valuable things is that, okay, we may know that within our, our traditional mainline churches that there are different, differing views, even within a single community, but we don't get a chance to ever talk it out. And I think that giving people the time and the space and a meal in front of them really opens up opportunities for this amazing dialogue and and really truly understanding each other's languages. Um, and I think that's that's certainly one of my favorite parts of Simple Church and why I'm so drawn to it. Uh, so everybody is needed, everybody has a job, and everyone is valued. It's it's a really really beautiful thing. That sounds incredible, and it also sounds like it wouldn't really be the same without the farm and the baking aspect like that. That's really irreplaceable in what you guys are doing. Is that, would you say that's right? Yeah. And I think like, um, I, I realized I haven't talked much about the bakery, um, at this point. So let me, let me, uh, walk it back a little bit and talk about the bakery a little bit. We are small. Um, and I would, and right now we are in our last year of seed funding and, um, I kind of just had this like realization that, you know, we're, we're about like 60 people and 60 people by passing the plate are, are not able to cover the cost of like the full operating budget of a church. Even one that's like, as like bare bones and shoestring as ours. Um, like it's a lot of money to run a church. And so I, I was starting to think like, I felt a lot of pressure to grow very quickly, um, uh, very soon. Because, you know, if we had 200 people, it'd be much easier to fundraise, I guess, to pay for the church. But there's kind of like this like starvation mentality, like every year around towards the end of fiscal year, where we have like a stewardship Sunday, and someone stands up and talks about how, you know, little giving had happened in the last year and how like people really need to step up. There's lots of guilt around like (laughs) that time of year. And um, and it's a shame. I, I, I do a lot of like guest preaching at churches on Sundays, since we meet on Thursdays. And, uh, I visit and a lot of times I'll sign the, you know, visit log and on Easter I'll get like four, you know, giving requests, just random, um, from churches, you know, who are basically treating Easter as their like main fundraising time because that's the time Ooh. they get the most butts in the pews. Oh so, yeah. That makes, that makes me feel gross. Yeah. Like, yeah. And. I talk to a lot of people who aren't churched, like, especially like if I'm like out in the community, like farmers markets and stuff. And a lot of the most common like critiques of the church that I hear is that the church is just like after people's money. 
And I don't think that that's like intentionally true in most contexts. But, you know, if we're spending all of our money on like these huge creaky old buildings that nobody actually really likes and that we can't really actually afford and we're hitting up like total strangers for just, you know, sending us a check to help us pay for the big creaky buildings. I think like people's like bullshit detectors are really finely tuned and they know that, you know, where our money is being spent. And so I think there's like a lack of transparency in like the way the churches raise money. And I think that there's this like tendency to, you know, bleed communities dry just to keep things going or to grow like so big that like nobody even knows who you are because the church is so enormous to pay for it. And so we started making bread and bread became very important to us because of the Eucharist. And people kind of like jokingly said, why don't we sell this? I didn't know like what went into it. I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know like what kind of permitting you needed. It was really like big and daunting and scary. Over time, I realized there was some wisdom in like the monastic traditions of, you know, monks who will make beer or monks who will make jam and have a needed craft and a trade that they can throw themselves into, you know, provide a like a food item or or some sort of service to the community through their through their work. And so bread like became that for us. And we bake bread by hand and we sell it at farmers markets. And our goal is to get to the point where we are able to pay for the entire church through bread sales. And the way we're going to do that is we just raised a bunch of money to buy a wood-fired oven. And we hired a professional baker um, who also happens to be a theologian named Kendall Vanderslice. And she is awesome. She's an anthropologist. She's like a scientist. Look her up on our website. She's great. And her her goal is to like make the bread a real legitimate business uh, that will pay for the the life of the church. And so hopefully next year, we will be selling 300 loaves a week. And that will be enough to cover all of our church budget. Wow. That's amazing. That's great. Yeah, we just had a conversation about three weeks ago on the show about like giving and where we manage that. And we were trying to come up with like ideas and what we how we thought churches could alleviate the the idea of money as always being a part of a conversation. And that's that's brilliant. That's the way to do it. And and like you're saying, it's a really old model. It's not like yeah, it's recent. old old as the hills. And if you go to a monastery, if you give that monastery money, more likely than not, the monastery will give it to the poor. And the reason why is because monasteries are like self-sustaining cloistered communities, right? They are able to maintain their budget through their work, you know, whether it's farming or baking or beer making or what. If you go to Tizé, France, which is like so popular, everybody loves Tizé. If you give Tizé money, they give it to the poor because they make all the money they need by, um, you know, making jam and bread and all kinds of things. What a like beautiful ministry of hospitality. So like I, I have this vision of like next year at Simple Church, if you put money in the offering plate, we will give it away because we won't need it. Um, and we will give it to, you know, help bring about the kingdom of God. And that, that for me is like a much more exciting model of like fundraising. And hopefully, so this year we ran a surplus, which is pretty like unheard of for church plants as young as we are. And it's because we're like generating income and the money that we're raising above our budget, we can use to create new branches um, of the dinner church model in, in our area. 
um, so we can like bankroll new inventive ministries um, from our ministry and the surplus from our bread. So is that is like doing other branches of the ministry? Is that also a way that you would combat growth? Because I'm assuming there's kind of a plateau where maybe this model wouldn't work with a certain amount of people. Yeah, I mean, because like 60 people, like we'll we'll average about 30 people a night for dinner on Thursdays. And that that feels like just about as big as you can get, like for a dinner party. Like it stops being a dinner party and it starts being like a, I don't know, like a sorority party or something. Like, you know, like a, it starts being like almost like a kegger if you get more than like 50 people showing up. And so I think that like for us, like having multiple nights of worship and having multiple congregations under the same umbrella are in our future. And we actually just hired our church planting apprentice. His name's Liana. She's coming up from Texas. And she's going to work with us for a year. She'll farm and bake and dinner worship with us. And she'll also be fundraising and doing like area research to find where our second branch will be. And so she'll start our second branch, Simple Church 2, location TBD, with its own monastic funding model and its own like separate identity. But it'll still be dinner church and we'll be connected under the same farm. Hey, did Chrissy, did I hear you say that the bread making process takes, let me see if I remember this correctly, 18 hours? Yeah. And I think, Zach, you sort of alluded to that, even just in your describing, you know, if we have quick growth within the church, like super, super rapid fire growth, um, that's actually not helpful. And so when we look at the way that we make bread, um, most supermarkets use a crap ton of sugar and a whole lot of yeast to create this bread that we often eat every day. Um, but with this particular model, we allow the bread to ferment. We don't use any sugar and we use, what is it, Zach, like a teaspoon and a quarter? Of, it's it's of actually yeast. only, it's only a quarter, quarter teaspoon, which is like, oh, that's very little. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. wow. Like, like that's half, nothing. half a penny. And where does the flour come from? The flour, we use like uh, the high quality like artisan bread flour. And then we use uh, whole wheat grains to you know, increase the, the health of it. A farm that people should look up is um, uh, Four Star Farms in Northfield, which is an awesome local grain provider that we have used in the past and we'll, we'll keep using. Oh, so Chrissy, sorry, I, I interrupted you. You were talking about yeast and flour and... Yeah, yeah. So um, we let this ferment, we use so little yeast and we use no sugar. And so what happens is that over these 12 to 18 hours, the the yeast really begin to work on on the flour mixture. And it's it's incredible. I mean, we we baked bread this morning. Um, and so to dump out those tubs, which Zach mixed up what last night or sometime yesterday, we yeah, dumped okay. it out this morning. And to see all of that growth in a longer period of time, I mean, most bread that you make only rises within an hour to two hours, but this is 12 to 18 hours. This is huge. This is so much longer. It's this incredible process of chemistry and science and, and a lot of faith because today we woke up this morning and it was raining like crazy. And so the weather can have a huge effect on it. So we were like crossing our fingers and praying that, you know, it didn't over ferment or it fermented just right. I think it turned out pretty well today. So it's always a <laughs> wait and see sort of mentality. It's, but it sounds like the, 
not only the process, but the connection to the earth is really important to you guys. And this is maybe circling back to some, a bunch of things that have been said so far, but I'm picking up a theme here <laughs> of, uh, being, being really conscious of, of your relationship to the earth and Mark that you're leaving sourcing locally, um, being really, really connected to, to nature, which is, um, it, it's unusual, I think for most of us in, in modern life these days. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think, I think a lot about work and like, I think like, like ministers tend to be stressed out, overworked people who are pulled in a million different directions. And, um, you know, like ministers have a tendency to be, you know, like they can, uh, really ruin their marriages because of their ministry. And, you know, they work a million hours and, um, it, I was just looking at it and it doesn't like seem like very like grounded, you know, used to be that about a third of the country were farmers. They would farm enough for enough food for their families. And then maybe about 20 other people, you know, now most of us have jobs that are not, don't have anything to do with like food production. Right. And so like, it's almost like we're working a million hours so that we could get money so that we could, um, you know, pay for our house, pay for our food, buy our gym membership to stay healthy. Um, but like farmers don't join gyms, right? They have this like, like holistic lifestyle where they're like hands are in the dirt and they're using their, their bodies physically to plant plants that become like nutritious food they can use to feed their families and their communities. Like that, that type of work to me is just like so compelling. And like, there's like, there's nothing more joyful in my life than like taking flour and water and salt and letting it ferment and like, just like magically bringing it all together into this like beautiful, like nutritious bread and then handing it to someone and knowing they're going to feed their family with it. That is like holy good work that, um, that I think a lot of us are missing out on that, like connection to food and that connection to other people. And, um, like that's the, that's the type of work that I think that a lot of us are longing for. And I think there's like this general discontent with, with people about their jobs, but also about the food they're eating and like the lack of connection that we have. Um, and also just like in farming, there is rest. Like you plant the plant in the ground, you do everything that you can and then you wait. And with bread, like you mix it up, you know, put it in the, the right place and you like get it ready, but then you just let it sit and you let it rest. And like without that rest, like you can't have a good product. Uh, I think that's something that we're all missing in our lives is that like, like that Sabbath, like, like if, if your Sabbath is just like, working yourself to the bone and then collapsing at the end of the day because you're so exhausted and that's like not Sabbath. Right. I think like, like we're, I, so many of us are longing for like a life of like balance and connection and feeding our souls and our bodies. And, um, I think like in a lot of ways, like going back to like more simple rhythms of life or what, what we could do to get back to that, uh, that type of lifestyle. Um, I would say, yeah, that's actually one of the, most beautiful reasons why I'm still connected to Simple Church. I mean, there's so many beautiful reasons, of course. Um, but I found that I'm so much more centered and there is a specific rhythm to to this lifestyle that I need. And I think a lot of us need that sort of groundedness and that rhythm. So I started attending Simple Church in April of 2015. Um, and then by the summer, I was getting my hands in that dough. Uh, it was 
a really, really necessary thing for me to do. Actually, I I lost one of my really good um, mentors and youth volunteers, uh, one of my greatest friends, um, uh, last summer, very, very suddenly. And for me to work with Simple Church and and to be a part of that community in a very different way, I think changed a lot for the better. Uh, so I, I started working with the bread and started kneading it and it became this incredible breath, um, this incredible, uh, rest, uh, work, rest, work rhythm that altered everything for me. And I've, I've told Zach this a lot as well. And, and I know that, that Zach like really facilitated that for me. Oftentimes I would come in in the morning and just not speak and, and just work that bread. And in some way, shape or form, like healing was occurring there, even though we didn't communicate verbally. And even though, you know, we were doing this beautiful work, but it was, it was so prayerful and it was really, really beautiful to have that in, in a really big time of need. And so I've continued, um, of course, during the school year, it's, it's a lot more difficult. I'm in my second year of seminary. Uh, so I didn't get as much time to, to work with simple church through the school year, but I'm back now and, and it feels amazing. Well, that's That's really, yeah, that's really great to, to hear like the, you know, a lot of times when we, we, we tend to talk about church, we're like, well, how are people affected by it? It always seems to be connected with some, I don't know, some program or some message or something like that. And just something as simple as like kneading dough and coming back into the rhythm of life from a loss like that is really powerful. Yeah, that's very powerful. And and something about Sabbath and healing that you're both talking about is interesting to me. So I grew up as a, a minister's daughter, right? And it always struck me as quite odd that the whole church is taught to practice Sabbath on Sunday, but that's always a working day for ministers. So the people who are preaching Sabbath never really get a Sabbath. Honestly, most ministers don't really get a full day off, hardly ever. Um, Which is dumb. It's It's terrible. I take two very like boring days off every week, and it's awesome. If you're not taking two days off, you're wrong. Like, Take two days off, y'all. People fought and died like for the 40-hour work week. Like they, they shed blood so you could have two days off every week. And if you like don't take it off, then you are like not living up to the full potential of the labor movement. Like, (laughs) that's compelling. That's compelling. And also, you know, to be a healer, you also have to be whole yourself. Like you have to take care of yourself first. Oh yeah. Um, Put on your own oxygen mask, you know? And I, I, that's, that's affected me a lot throughout my life. You know, watching a lot of people I love in ministry just get burnt out and burned up by that. And so it's very refreshing to hear you both talk about this whole, the whole thing that you're doing. It's, it's really amazing. Yeah. And so self-care is such a buzzword in seminary right now. Yeah, it is. Self-care, self-care. I, like hashtag <laughs> self-care. Like, I feel like I, I, I heard it like a million times and I heard it from people who were like stressed out <laughs> and working way too hard. Um, and, you know, basically just like spinning their tires. And I feel like, you know, a lot of times what they would say is like, you know, I didn't do all my reading tonight and I didn't write my paper and I didn't do this. And I watched Netflix because self-care. And I was like, all right, well, if you're watching Netflix, <laughs> you have to finish your work, right? Then you're not fully watching Netflix because you're stressing out about your work and you're not doing your work because you're watching Netflix. And so you're not really like fully resting and you're not fully working. So I'm much more compelled by the idea of like setting up a rhythm of your life where 
you, you know, you work hard in the time that you work, but you don't work hard for the sake of working hard and you get the, the work done that you need to get done. But then the days that you rest, you like you rest, man. And you're not like worried about all that other stuff. You're able to turn it off for a little bit. I think that's something that a lot of us are missing. And working with the material world, the bread, the chickens, you know, the flour, you, you really, you, you kind of can't take that home mentally, I suppose. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. And that, that's the other thing too. I think like, so I think like for pastors, especially the, the worst thing that ever happened to the professional ministry was the professional ministry where we like see the ministers as these like professional people who have to wear a suit and tie and their job is to, you know, read theological books and come up with a, um, erudite sermon that will, you know, sustain us through the entire week. And so it becomes like where if you give like a 20 minute sermon every week, how many hours a week are you spending writing that sermon? You know, how much time could you be spent doing something else? Yeah. Something that would, you know, like I think better, better serve your time. Like when we saw ministers as professionals, whose like job it was is to write a speech that, that, that like was a really bad turn. Um, and I think I'm much more interested in like hearing what my community has to say and like creating like spaces for like conversation, um, is really important. And because my sermon is five minutes, I'm not spending like a million hours writing it. Um, I'm, I have the, the freedom to do other things and meet people where they are in the community and, Hopefully, if everything goes well and we don't over ferment the bread, then like feed them like you know delicious, nutritious, life giving food. I think that that's totally right on. I mean, sometimes it feels as though the traditional church models don't even allow for the opportunity for that kind of Sabbath that you're talking about, where you have modes of rest and, um, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's very all of this sounds very foreign to my ears like can you are you allowed to do this <laughs> yeah okay jeff like jeff asked me like 20 minutes ago and i realized i still haven't answered this question you know he asked about like pushback or blowback um and like it's been pretty well non-existent i mean maybe maybe after i do this i'll get a million uh hate mails or something <laughs> <laughs> but i think like i think like most of my peers in ministry understand exactly what we're trying to do like it's, it's simple and it's different, but it's not rocket science. You know, we're throwing a dinner party every week, you know, like anybody could do this, but I think a lot of times they feel like constrained by their setting or their building or the way it's always been done. So they don't have the same kind of freedom to experiment that we have. But I think like generally people just like get, get what we're trying to do. I think like generally speaking, there's not been a lot of negative pushback for, for what we're doing. I think like a lot of people just understand it intuitively. And I've also had friends who are definitely not churchgoers, who are actually very devout atheists, who have said, so wait, that's what you do in this particular model of church? I mean, that sounds like something that I would go to. So it's it's this amazing, beautiful, different thing that really has breathed life into our notion of church and, and my notion of church. I mean, you talked about getting rest and I had to, to laugh a bit because right now I'm finishing up um, my fourth year in youth ministry and I am uh, leaving that particular profession and, and seeking to do a lot more things uh, in a similar model to simple church. And so when you said, you know, in traditional mainline churches, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of room for rest. The only room for rest that I get is after like youth lock-in nights or after youth retreats where I'm just dead. 
and I come home and I pass out forever. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely appreciate this sort of model. Um, it's, it's amazing. It's really been a healthy thing for me to get engaged in. And I'm thinking about how many times I grew up doing all these programs and ministries at church and all these activities. How few times I just sit and like look in someone's eyes and talk to them. (laughs) You know, that's oftentimes we're so busy doing stuff that we forget to be together. So that that was going to be my next question for you guys is, and you kind of have alluded to this, but I'm trying to, you know, parse out. So if you guys have the farm and you're doing the bakery and all this stuff, and that's so part of your community, um, how is it then that people could replicate what you guys are doing without those elements? Do you think that's possible? Like someone could, you know, in the middle of the city who can't grow anything or can't, doesn't really have a space to bake. All right. So I'll, I'll say two things. I think like anybody can throw a dinner party, man. If you get, if you get five people around a table and you break bread together and you pray together, that's church. And it's not like church light. It's like, that's real church. Like with no apologies, breaking bread with people prayerfully and having conversations that matter and singing and worshiping together. That's, you know, anybody can do that right now. And you don't need seed money and you don't need a model of any kind. You just need to like go out, invite your friends around a table and that's, that's church. But I think like one of the things I really love about our model is the way that like all these different like trades come together, you know, like farming is something that was never important to me until I started a food church and, you know, like just like happened to be the next door to like a working farm. And basically like the way we got started with the farm was I was talking to the farmer and there's 30 acres of land that he was grazing on with his cattle around our five acres of land that the house sits on. And they were like going in a circle around it. And in the meantime, like our, our land was like way like overgrown and horrendous and full of poison ivy. And so I said to him, I was like, you know, like if you want, you can just use our land for free. And he's like, really? And I was like, yeah. And he was out there like the next morning, at like 6 a.m. And so I went out there and helped him put out the, the fence and the cows were like on the church property. And I thought that was just like really cool. Um, and then I was like, you know, I, I have some free time in the morning. I can come by and help out. Back then, I didn't even have a church to like invite people to yet. So, like, what was I supposed to be doing with my time? And so, I just like started working on the farm almost because I didn't know what to do with myself. Um, I was like dying with like <laughs> you know like so much free time. Uh, so, I started working on the farm like almost on accident, and then it, then it became like theologically important later once I understood like the importance of like knowing where your food comes from. But yeah, I mean, there there are often times that the farmer will call me like I'm in the middle of something else, and we'll have to go and like wrangle wrangle the cows away uh, <laughs> yeah, get them get them back in greener pastures do you use a lasso or like how do you do it no it's not nearly <laughs> it's not nearly as uh attractive as that it's it's much more getting behind them and praying they go where you want them to go because they're big animals <laughs> clapping your hands and say hey cow hey cow hey cow go over there <laughs> here girl yes that's, that's more less less yeehaw more please please come here please. <laughs> And Chrissy, you go help harvest too, right? And you guys, you guys help at the farm, you said? Yeah, yeah. So that's typically on Thursday morning. So I, I'm sure that that will expand at some point. Um, so right now we're doing a lot of weeding, um, so much weeding. 
but it's it's amazing to look down the rows and actually see the sort of progress that's happening. And so we come back every week and we see that the kale is huge and we see that the carrots have been planted and we see like all of these amazing different types of plants that are just springing up um, seemingly out of nowhere. And it's it's just this amazing, beautiful, even as menial as weeding sounds. It's so relaxing and it's so beautiful uh, just to pull at the earth and and create a nurturing environment. Do you find that you get a lot of participation from people that are also attending like the service or the meals? Like, is it a pretty large percentage of people that that kind of feel like they want to be involved in the farm work as well? I think a lot of our, oh, I was going to say, no, uh, a lot of our members have families, which, which makes it kind of complicated. Mm -hmm. Um, so, or jobs, jobs. I mean, we work during the day, during the mornings, during the week. So it it makes things a little bit complicated, but we definitely have some devoted drop-ins that, that really do help from time to time. Um, and actually our volunteer team is, is huge. People will, uh, come and help mix the dough to come and help sell the bread at farmer's markets. They'll come and help us wash dishes, which is like a bear of a job. Um, <laughs> scraping dough off, you know, mixing bowls is not anyone's favorite job, but someone's got to do it. And we have lots of help with things like that um, as, as people can. And what's the, you, you said you had a lot of families. Is it a pretty diverse group of people that attend the, the meals as far as like age and economic status and all that kind of thing? Yeah, age age wise, we were very diverse. Our youngest person that comes is five now, and um, our oldest person just moved. She just moved. Um, Shirley moved to California, and she was in her early early nineties. Oh wow! Um, and I think like with church plants, there's lots of tendency to kind of just like shoot for the millennial age group, you know, eighteen to thirty. Um, and I think like for us, like I was not wanting that. I was kind of expecting it to be like hipster leaning young people like myself. Um, but I was really pleasantly surprised that we have like a really strong contingent of church matriarchs and we have a lot of kids running around too. And like, you know, Thanksgiving dinner wouldn't be the same without grandma and it wouldn't be the same without the kids table. And that's definitely, definitely what we have. The, the other thing too is like, you know, speaking of like, you know, having a diversity of, you know, socioeconomic representation at, at churches, if your only fundraising model is built on passing the plate, you know, you, are putting a real limit on the people that you're inviting into your community. Like if, if you're expecting, you know, families who can barely pay the bills to, um, you know, help bankroll your church, I think that's really wrong headed. Like, you know, the, the story of the widow's might, have you guys ever looked at that recently? Can I start preaching a little bit? I think I'm gonna start preaching a little bit. Um, <laughs> that's usually talked about on stewardship Sundays, right? People say like, look at this widow who gave the last penny that she had you know, and if we could have faith like hers and, you know, give our pennies to the church, that's what the gospel is calling us to. But if you read like a few verses before, Jesus says like, woe to you, you devourers of widows' houses, um, you know, who wear your long flowing robes and sit in your large stone buildings and destroy the poor underfoot, right? And then directly after that, you have an image of a widow giving her last penny. And like, guess what? Like a widow giving her last penny that is not a church growth model. That is injustice. And so I think for me, I'm like much more interested in having like our fundraising models completely separate from uh, the people who attend. Um, and then whatever they can give, 
you know, we'll, we'll use to help the disenfranchised in some way. Preach. <laughs> right. You did. Well, you know, and I think maybe there's a lot of reluctance around the economic structures that we have that really clearly delineate for profit and nonprofit. I don't know. Have you gotten any pushback on the for profit? I mean, I don't, I don't know how you guys are set up like with the IRS. That's not, not as much of what I'm interested in knowing, but, um, the idea of making money through the church, you know, like bringing in an income source, has that been an issue at all? Or I think it's an awesome idea. And I think, I think you guys are onto something here. I think, I think like if anything, that's, that's the thing that kind of like gets people a little bit nervous and, and like nobody wants to admit that they are like wrongheaded about money or like how they spend their money. And nobody wants to think their church is like spending money wrong. But I, I'll just like go out on a limb here and say like, I think it is like economic sin that churches are spending millions of dollars to maintain the edifice of a church building when they could spend that money to help the poor. Like, I think that is like absolutely wrong that we're doing that. And people in the world see us doing that and they are disgusted by it. And we're we're blind to it because we're in it, and it feels really important for us to have a new steeple, but it's not. Like I don't I don't I don't want to like hurt people's feelings in saying that, but I think like we as a church have to like look ourselves really hard in the face and say like what are we what are we like actually doing? You know, like what are we actually spending our resources on? And if there's anything that's gotten pushed back, it's been that that side of our message. I think, but um, I think I think generally people know that that is correct. It's very true. <laughs> Okay, so what do you guys think is the future of church? Like, what, where are we headed here? Because um, you're doing something radically different, so clearly you're making a break from the norm. All right, so I think the future of the church is it's going to look drastically different than it looks now, which is like you know, like a nothing statement. So I will explain explain what I'm saying. I think like denominations, um, Protestant denominations, are going to be like no more within the next like 50 years or so. Um, the Methodist church, if we continue the rate of spending that we have with the rate of decline that we have, our death date is 2050. And nobody's talking about that. And that's really scary to me. I think like individual congregations are going to continue to decline. And then they're going to merge with like whatever the largest church in each individual town is. And eventually there'll be like much fewer churches with much fewer, um, with, okay, the church is going to be increasingly irrelevant to an increasingly larger amount of people. And I think like churches are going to be about much smaller, intimate relationships. Um, I think like dinner church is you know, like not a phenomenon that is like unique to us. Like there are other dinner churches that have kind of popped up independently of each other and look like hauntingly similar to one another. And I see that as, a sign that that's a direction, one direction that people are finding like authentic community. The other thing that people are finding authentic community in is like CrossFit and yoga and, you know, pubs and coffee shops and, you know, people, people find community. Like people aren't any less connected to communities than they ever have been. I, I think, like, I think that's actually like an incorrect thing that people are saying just because they're not in your church doesn't mean they're not connected to communities. Um, like each of us has communities just we're not finding it in churches anymore. And I think like people are going to continue to be like creative and like find new ways to express communities. And I, I think like churches are changing just like everything else is changing. I mean, like the music industry is changing. Radio is changing. Movies are changing. Um, and people are having to find new ways to express themselves in those mediums that don't fit in the, the way that 
like they were structured traditionally. But that doesn't mean that people like just because the music industry is dying doesn't mean that people are going to stop making music, right? So I think like like people will always find ways to make music. Like music will never die. Um, in the same way, I don't think the gospel will ever die. I think like organized Protestant churches are most likely going to be kaput within the next like hundred years in America, but people will still find ways to find the gospel and express the gospel. And I think jumping off of that too, I I can't help but think theologically about what we're going through just because school ended, you know, two months ago, but I'm still in that mode. Um, You know, something has to die in order to be resurrected. And so I, I've begun to realize the importance and the beauty of resurrection. Like you need to die in order to be resurrected. And so for the institutional church, um, we've tried to patch problems for a very long time. We've tried, you know, to, to increase membership in different ways. We've tried to change up our models. We've tried to do so many different things that ultimately have not been effective. And we're seeing the results of that in our numbers. And I think that one of the important things to remember is that after death, there is something. I mean, that's the core of one of the cores of Christian theology is that there is an afterlife and it's going to look nothing like what life right now looks like. Um, And so when I when I think about simple church, when I hear about other models of church, I begin to realize that this is the resurrection, like things have died and and I'm thinking about North Grafton United Methodist Church's story, how they closed their doors and they decided to invest in their future in a very different way. And, and that sort of resurrection is can be rare, but I think it's becoming more and more um, evident these days. And it's a beautiful thing, but Zach, I have to I have to laugh because when you were describing that, I was like, well, geez, you're kind of making this sound apocalyptic. <laughs> yeah, no, that's where mine went too. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think no, I think, I think that dark, exactly but... exactly the problem is that it is apocalyptic. Like mm. the house is on fire and nobody's running for the exits. Yeah, churches are closing by the droves, and like pastors are leaving the ministry by the droves, like thousands and thousands every year. They are hemorrhaging, and it, there are only two pastors under the age of 40 in New England in the United Methodist Church too, right? That's me and one other person. Um, and so like, there, there's also like no mystery to the fact that if you don't bring in new young ministers into the fold, like eventually we're going to have a ministry crisis in the next 20 years because all of our ministers are going to be retired. More than, more than half of our ministers are within 10 years of retirement age. There are like major institutional problems that have have to do mostly with money, but not only with money. There are major institutional problems that have to do with like, you know, bringing in new, new life and people who are like willing to make, take risks. But also we just have to like, I think like we have to like create a ministry culture where ministers are able to and expected to spend like more than half of their time out in the community, meeting new people and inviting them into the church. Like, I think without that, we're not going to grow and we're kind of like digging a hole for ourselves. And I think, too, you know, Zach, you, you just mentioned inviting people into the church. I think, too, in our in our model of ministry, we're inviting people out from the church to the world to really dig your hands into the community and engage in new and life-giving ways. I, I feel like so often we just want to get butts in pews. You know, where's the sending forth? And so I think that, that one of the things that the new church 
whatever is resurrected out of out of this apocalyptic vision um, will be so focused on dealing with social issues, economic divides, um, equality issues, racism. I think we will be so close to the front lines that that we're going to encounter reality in a very new and different way. And I'm excited, but terrified. Um, you know, it's it's a beautiful thing that will happen. Way to end it on hope, Christy. <laughs> I try. I try. You resurrected that one. <laughs> no, seriously, the way that all comes full circle is good. And and I think looking forward, not you know, overcoming that fear that a lot of people are feeling and not wanting to face. You know, they it's not the end of the story. It's not. That's awesome. I feel like there's a million more things, but we're kind of ending, uh, getting to the end of our time. So is how can people find out more about what you're doing and uh, maybe even be inspired to do something along those lines where they're at? All right. So go to simpleumc.org. So that's simpleumc, like United Methodist Church.org. Um, and you can find out about us. Shoot me an email if you want. Um, you can like us on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash simple UMC. We are on Instagram. You can find us through our website. Look at our pretty pictures of bread and stay in touch. I think like the most important thing to do is to know where your food comes from, know who made it, and know that in order for you to eat, something had to die, whether it's a plant or whether it's an animal. And I think like the most important thing that we can do is like restore that sacred relationship um, where we are like giving thanks for the death that had to happen so that we could live and like treating those um, those plants and those animals and the people who produces who produce those plants and animals and the earth that provides those plants and animals with like the due respect and honor that they deserve. And I think that if you could do that, that's like a revolutionary thing. And if you can do it around a table with people that you love or people that you disagree with, like that is an even more revolutionary thing. And every one of us can do it. Um, and it's not like beyond our ability to do. And it's cheap. Um, and it doesn't cost a lot. And you don't need to raise a million dollars to do it. Anybody can do it. Also, like you can come out and see us in Grafton if you want to like actually get your hands on dough or your you know knees in the dirt. Come on and, and we'll, we'll put you to work. Um, so you know, give me a call. My number's on the website. I want to go. Come on. <laughs> All right. Well, you're, too, you're too close not to. Not I will. Yeah. I'll hop up there. <laughs> you sold me. <laughs> I'll give you a free loaf of bread. What? Okay. I'm definitely got to go now. There, now you got to go. Now I got to go. Jeff, right. Jeff, you too. <laughs> I will. I will. I will travel cross country and make it. <laughs> um, this has been a delight, you guys. Thank yeah, you so absolutely. much. I feel inspired. And we'll make sure to put all your information in the show notes. So if you're listening, you can get all the information that um, we just talked about at irenacast.com slash 70. And as usual, for any questions, comments, concerns for the show in general, you can always contact us at irenacast.com slash feedback. Yeah. So again, thank you. Thank you two so much for coming on and sharing more about uh, that church model. And I'm kind of a nerd when it comes to different church models, because I feel like most of the ones that I've worked under don't work very well. So I'm I'm real excited and inspired by uh, the model that you guys are setting forth. And uh, it's, it's really great. Keep up the good work, please. Thanks. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you both, Zach and Christy. 
Adios. All right. Cheers. Cheers.